It is Christmas Eve, 1931, and Tusco the Unwanted is about to show everyone how he feels about being stuck in Portland fucking Oregon. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Tusco was a circus elephant, a very naughty circus elephant, a really big, naughty, naughty circus elephant. And due to his naughty demeanor, as we will see, Tusco thus became a much unwanted elephant. But Tusco had his glory one cold Christmas in Portland town. Tusco was an Asian elephant who was obtained from Thailand around 1900. With tusks that measured 7 feet long, as an adult, Tusco was just over 10 feet tall and weighed over 7 tons. In this elephantine Christmas tale, the Santa Claus to Tusco's Rudolph was an elephant tramp named Slim. George Lewis, who went by the nickname Slim, joined the circus at 16, where he eventually became an elephant tramp. What is an elephant tramp, you ask? Professor Edward Davis from the University of Oregon's Department of Geological Sciences explains. It sounds like there was a time during the Great Depression when there were a certain number of elephants. I don't know how many that were sort of disowned by their circuses because they were too expensive. And so individual trainers would essentially live um, on the rails with these elephants. They would get enough money to move to a new town and show the elephant for a few cents of viewing and try to make money to eat and try to make money to buy booze. And then they would share the booze and the food with the elephants. And that was more or less how they lived. So they were tramps um, and they were elephants and they were elephant tramps. Yeah. It's kind of a crazy idea and I don't think anybody would stand for it today, but just these elephants wandering around the countryside with a, a lone trainer and, and no, no organization to support them. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Just kind of that lifestyle, just right, the bit that I, right. just the bit that I have read about it. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. And Tusco of course spent the last part of his life as a tramp in the Pacific Northwest. And of course, to an elephant tramp like Slim Lewis, who wanted to be the best, 
Tusco was the elephant to tame. When Slim finally got a chance to see Tusco in the flesh, the elephant was part of the Al G. Barnes Circus. Tusco's reputation as a not-so-gentle giant was already well-established. Tusco was very often shrouded in chains. Slim writes that he was even more exciting and impressive than he had been in photographs, and I'll never forget the awe with which I first sized him up. He was virtually covered with chains, with martingales on his tusks, cross hobbles on his forelegs, and a chain basket affair that controlled, to a certain extent, the movement of his head and trunk. There was also a long chain fastened to his cross hobbles and trailing behind him on the ground as he walked. If he became unmanageable and started to run, his handler could grab the chain and make it fast to the nearest tree or telephone pole and hope the thing wasn't uprooted. But wearing chains all day was bad for Tusco's health. The elephant would develop sores on his back from the chains rubbing on his hide all day. He wore them for so long that his flesh would embed the chains into his legs, and the links had to be cut away with a bolt cutter. Slim swabbed the deep, open wounds with antiseptic. The stories of Tusco's bad behavior were legendary. There was this old colored man who took care of Tusco when he was with the Clark Circus. He would ride a horse beside Tusco and walk him from one town to the next. <laughs> the circus traveled on wagons, and the old man was the only one Ned would allow to give him orders. Sometime Ned or Tusco would break away from the other elephants the circus owned and charge into a farmer's field alongside the road to stuff himself on crops. <laughs> sometimes he came back to the old man of his accord, but sometimes they had to force him back. The story goes, they even had to shoot him with birdshot to get him to mind. <laughs> Tusco definitely took on the label of bad elephant. One hot dog stand owner drew Tusco's attention and before he could be harnessed by handlers, he had looted most of the hot dog buns with his agile trunk. There were times in his life when he was considered unmanageable and he was kept in a pen built of steel railroad rings. And to that equation, add his massive legendary size which could strike shock and awe into communities as Tusco came to town. And you have a much maligned elephant. One reason Tusco got in a tiff so often may have been his very name. Homer Pryor was one of the elephant's handlers, also an elephant tramp with decades of experience. Even in 1933, Pryor was called old school by the papers. With true and love tattooed across his knuckles, Pryor certainly fit the bill. Tusco's real name was Ned. Calling him Tusco was one of the things that made him mean. He wasn't really a mean bull, but 
calling him Tusco and not giving him any company of his own kind, that's what spoiled him. We asked our panel of elephant experts if Tusco was really a bad elephant. First, from the University of Oregon's Department of Geological Sciences, Professor Edward Davis. Was Tusco a bad elephant? I think Tusco was a mistreated elephant. I think Tusco had a hard life and he did some bad things, but he never killed anybody. And um, I think from our perspective today, and thinking about his treatment, it's entirely understandable why he behaved the way he did. So it's an unfair characterization, I guess. I think so. I think so. And part of the story, too, is as I understand it, um, once Tusco had started to misbehave, they put him... Um, they put him out to pasture, so to speak, and then were touring another elephant with his name. And that other elephant actually was a dangerous elephant that did kill somebody. And so a lot of people thought Tusco was a, a murderous elephant, but I don't think he ever actually did. Next, we asked the same question of Bob Lee, the elephant curator at the Oregon Zoo. You know, no. Um, he did what came naturally. Uh, back then, they didn't realize that male elephants went into must, which is a, a period of time when their testosterone shoots to the roof. They're naturally aggressive in their natural habitats. They would be looking for other males to fight for territory and females. Well, in captivity, that meant that they were aggressive randomly. They didn't quite understand why. They didn't know what the signs were. They certainly didn't know what the blood work told them. These male elephants occasionally would just lash out, and so they used chains and other methods to try to control them so that they could uh, uh, take care of them. And Tusco was in a must in a bad way. was especially difficult to handle. Because of his huge size, he was also opinionated about people, so it wasn't safe for strangers to walk up to him at any time. But if you look at it from Tusco's side, he had the psychological attitude of a juvenile delinquent or a man who has served time in the penitentiary. Once he was tarred with a bad reputation, expect the worst of him. He knows it. We asked Bob at the Oregon Zoo, how do you handle an aggressive elephant in musk? How do you handle an aggressive elephant that's in a must. What, what, what do you do? Kid gloves. Yeah. You know, you ask politely, hey, would you like to come over and get a reward? If they don't want to, that's okay. It's natural. You know, um, 
we don't pressure them too much. We want to make sure that we can take care of all their needs. Uh, we have to be able to check their feet. They have to be able to shift so that we can clean and provide them fresh bedding. And so they will do that. It's when there's any sort of pressure applied to them that they'll lash out, you know, kind of against authority. So um, we're very consistent in our methods and we're very consistent in what we ask for. So that helps as well. They know what's coming and they know, you know for instance, a bath routine. They know what the next step is. So they're one step ahead of the staff and we set it up so they can succeed. So while he may not have been a bad elephant, Tusco certainly was a big elephant. When the Algae Barn Circus bought him in the early 1920s, they had a special rail car built with a deeper bottom just to transport him. The problem was that Tusco continued to grow. Soon he filled the extra-large car, and a larger car couldn't be found. In 1931, Tusco was getting too big to transport. He was retired from circus work and was sold off as a sideshow curiosity. Tusco wound up in Oregon at Lotus Isle, where he was on display for his legendary fierce behavior and his grand bigness. But was Tusco truly the biggest beast that walks the earth as he was billed during his career? Bob Lee from the Oregon Zoo. I don't know that he was the largest. You know, there were a lot of exaggerated claims back then. Jumbo was called Jumbo and credited as being the largest in captivity. But, you know, a lot of that was um, was advertising to get folks in the door. But was Tusco the most popular name for an elephant ever? You know, there have been several Tuscos throughout, uh, throughout the decades, for sure. We have a Tusco here at the Oregon Zoo, in fact. So um, elephants with big tusks, big males with big tusks, sometimes got that name. Slim talked about the largest elephant in captivity moniker. Half the circuses in America have presented the largest elephant. All grown elephants look huge, so the biggest bull in the group always appears logically fit to bear the title of biggest in the world. Because size does matter. After Lotus Isle, Tusco went down to the Oregon State Fair to be displayed again, and at the conclusion of the fair, his owner skipped Salem without the massive elephant. Nor did he attend to the gigantic food bills that Tusco had racked up. With an abandoned six- or seven-ton problem on their hands, a problem that ate a bale and a half or two of hay a day, drastic measures had to be taken by the authorities. The story is cloudy, but eventually the choice came down to either send Tusco to an Albany rendering plant or entrust him to some elephant tramps. The tramps could have Tusco, who was in his must period, if they took him the hell out of Salem. Thus, the tramps obtained Tusco for just one dollar, and a trailer was obtained to transport the beast to Portland. Tusco arrived in P-Town on November 28, 1931, 
The Pachyderm's new Portland home was a sad state of affairs. Formerly a workshop, the tin and concrete walled shed was located on the east side of the river, East Main Street and Water Streets. The papers described the abode as dilapidated and ramshackle. Slim and the other tramps were able to rent the space for $20 a month. The tramps slept at the shack with Tusco. Opening the large metal door of the shed, the tramps charged 10 cents to view Tusco, and Portlanders loved it. Scores came to see Tusco. They filled the cigar box with 40 and $50 in dimes each day for a spell, but eventually the novelty wore off, and Tusco was unwanted again. The doings of Tusco was big news for the area broadsheets. A few days after his arrival, the daily paper reported that Tusco had caught a cold. Adding to his ailment was the blasts of December winter air through the slap-shod tin walls. Tusco was perspiring from his sickness, and every chilled wave of wind would cause the poor beast to tremble. Shivering in the hovel, he even refused offers of food. Tusco's handlers decided that an old-timey circus remedy was needed, and through unnamed sources, they obtained ten gallons of moonshine. After pouring the liquor into a half-barrel, they added a bit of water to make an elephant-sized toddy. It was reported that Tusco must have been familiar with the illicit elixir, as he instantly became a changed elephant, slapping his trunk wildly on the ground in happy anticipation and attempting to break the stout chains that bind his legs in an effort to reach the big wooden tub. The elephant was obviously excited for the intoxicants. Tusco squealed excitedly and then buried his trunk in the liquid depths. One huge gulp and the tub was half emptied. At the first taste, the elephant rolled his eyes in much a manner as a child viewing his Christmas presents for the first time and flapped his big ears in indication of perfect contentment. Trashed Tusco was pleased in his stupor. He slapped the ground with his trunk and picked up a hay bale and tossed it around the room. Next, he found a piece of wood about the size of a railroad tie and stuck it between his teeth. It took three handlers to get it released from his teeth. Tusco crashed on a pile of hay and woke without any sign of his cold. The Oregon Zoo's elephant curator, Bob Lee. Now, in a famous episode uh, that uh, the press absolutely loved, Tusco drank 10 gallons of whiskey when he was in that warehouse. Have you ever seen a drunk elephant before? I haven't seen a drunk elephant. I don't think I'd want to. You know, especially a big male elephant with the potential to get aggressive. Uh, these guys don't need much to push them over the top. Honestly, just looking at them and asking them for a behavior that in other, other times of the year they'd have no problem complying with when they're in must just makes them naturally aggressive. They're, they're grumpy, they don't want to be asked to do anything, and they want to show you how big they are. So I can't imagine feeding that much whiskey to an elephant.
But Tusco's pleasant disposition didn't last long. His moody, musty temperament soon returned in a behemoth, colossal, and other adjectives denote bigness kind of way. Maybe Tusco had just had enough, living in that cold, shitty tin shed, albeit a large one, down by the river. Maybe Tusco was just tired of it all. It was fucking Christmas, man. Christmas Eve found Tusco pissed. Tusco's front leg chains were secured with shackles. The shackles were fastened with a pin that was screwed into them. Typically, those pins had been battered with a hammer to keep them immobile, but as Tusco had been deep in his must, it had been too dangerous to approach the pachyderm to batter those pins. Well, wouldn't you know, Tusco decided to give himself a gift that Christmas. Tusco wanted the gift of freedom. With the finger at the tip of his trunk, Tusco unscrewed the pin that secured that shackle. He unscrewed one and then the other, freeing both of his front feet. While his rear feet were still secured, Tusco was no longer Tusco the Unwanted. Tasting freedom on Christmas, he became Tusco the Triumphant. Not everyone shared Tusco's Christmas joy. Slim relayed his fear at that moment. We had visions of Tusco stampeding in a crazy rage through the heart of Portland, killing and destroying everything in his path. Slim called the police and told them of the possible threat of the partially freed elephant. Several officers arrived with rifles and a confiscated jug of moonshine. Settling around the stove in that drafty building, the cops and the tramps spent Christmas Eve watching that pissed-off elephant watch them as they passed around the jug of moonshine, elephant hooks, and rifles at the ready. Christmas morning found trumpeting Tusco getting more pissed and more rambunctious in a very loud way. Streets nearby were closed, and the cars on the Hawthorne Bridge were halted by the authorities Never mind the precautions, thousands of Portlanders came to the area to witness the Christmas spectacle, or as Slim called it, the better to be among the first trampled by the raging elephant if he should escape. And Tusco did not disappoint his adoring fans. He charged at a side wall and with three bucks of his rock-like head, rumpled the section as though it were an eggshell. The behemoth had walked through the rear wall of the barn as though it were made of tissue paper. A good show was performed for all the Christmas spectators. As Slim said, Tusco gave a demonstration in Portland, Oregon of how hard tusks are. He decided to butt his way through a solid concrete wall reinforced with steel. He broke off several inches of his tusks, but he smashed a hole large enough for him to walk through. The gathered Portlanders, even after this manic display, apparently had no idea the grave danger they faced. The mob was reported to have roared with glee at Tusco as he broke down the wall. Portland Police Chief Leon Jenkins was tasked with keeping the Rose City citizens safe. The chief responded with a firing squad of eight police officers and a few soldiers from the Oregon National Guard. Armed with submachine guns and Springfield 3030 rifles, 
Tusco was just about to have a very, very bad Christmas day. Thousands of spectators crowded in close to witness the scene of the giant, ill-behaved elephant going batshit crazy on Christmas. Maybe they saw the cheer in Tusco's rampage, or perhaps joy in his pissed-off trumpeting, or maybe they had faith in the two remaining chains and concrete blocks that were fastened to it. Oregonian reporter Don McLeod didn't seem to share their holiday spirit. But for those concrete blocks, Tusco would have become an instant target for the sharpshooters. When he crumbled the walls of his abode and, ambling into the open, tried to shake off the irons holding his rear legs, the blocks, despite Herculean tugs, remained firm. Even Tusco's great strength failed to budge them. Had the animal jerked his way to freedom, the grim experts would have fired without orders, for all had heard of his previous rampages and realized the destruction that would have followed his release from captivity. And into our story enters one of Portland's greatest historical villains, Mayor George Baker. Only this time, dear ass-kicker, Mayor Baker was the story's hero. Just as the marksmen were lining up to dispatch Tusco, the mayor called in from his holiday at the tides on the coast. There was no way in hell that the children of Portland were going to witness the Christmas slaying of their beloved Tusco. Mayor Baker ordered that Tusco was only to be shot if he managed to free himself from all of his iron-forged chains. After a few aborted attempts, eventually a wire cable snare covered with sawdust was secured around one of Tusco's front legs. Enticed by a bag of oats, he stepped right into the trap. Tusco didn't go down easily, and he still fought like hell, but eventually chains and the shackles were reattached to his front feet, and this time the pins were bashed to keep them secure. 3,000 Portlanders paid a dime each to see triumphant Tusco on that Christmas day, and all in all, about 50,000 people viewed Tusco in his Portland tin shed. And once Tusco chilled the fuck out, he enjoyed a meager Christmas dinner by himself. Several spectators donated sacks of vegetables, and an outfitting company tossed in a few bales of hay. Do the elephants at the Oregon Zoo celebrate Christmas at all? You know, we do special things for them every day. So around Christmas time, they'll probably get Christmas trees. Um, they get pumpkins around Halloween. So they may not understand exactly what the holidays are, but as part of our natural enrichment that we do every day, seasonal activities do get incorporated. Every day is Christmas for yep. the elephants at the Oregon Zoo. Absolutely. Tusco stayed in Portland a few weeks longer. But eventually, the dimes rarely filled the cigar box anymore. Slim and the other tramps and Tusco moved up to Washington. Tusco died in Seattle a few years later on June 10, 1933. A deep vein thrombosis is the accepted cause of death, but there have been some whispers of poison being dispensed from a little black bottle. Today, Tusco's skeleton 
is in a nondescript storeroom in the basement of an unnamed building at the University of Oregon. Professor Edward now, Davis. Now tell us about that. How did University of Oregon end up with Tusco's skeleton? Well, you know, there was this tension about whether Tusco should be fed and kept or just turned into a, a resource through a lot of his life because he was so large and he cost so much in food during a time when the economy was so depressed that um, even after Slim had him and was taking him on the road, Slim was constantly fighting off people who were offering to buy Tusco, essentially to turn him into a, a dead attraction instead of a live one, because he would make money as a skeleton and a skin, but he wouldn't make money as a, a living elephant. And so at one point, I think Slim was selling shares of Tusco to people, and he sold some shares to a fella who ended up trying to uh, to take control, essentially take a hostile takeover of Tusco's interests and turn him into a uh, turn him into a, a stuffed elephant. And uh, that was the time that Slim got Tusco um, uh, essentially saved by the city of Seattle. The Seattle mayor got involved, and Tusco ended up being commandeered by the city and put into the zoo where he lived for about a year before he died. But um, through that process, the, the shyster who was um, speculating in Tusco shares um, sold shares off to people, and one of the people who ended up with shares was uh, Dr. Bull, who lived, I believe, in um, Portland. And, uh, and Dr. Bull ended up with the rights to Tusco's skeleton. So once Tusco died, um, the body was rendered. I think at first he went through a necropsy at the University of, uh, the University of Washington in Seattle, and they, uh, they did, you know, it was an excellent learning opportunity for the students. And you can still see the marks on the bones from when they dissected him. And that's how they discovered the, the cause of death. Um, but then after Tusco's was um, essentially autopsy, necropsy is the veterinarian term for autopsy, um, his, his parts were divvied up and his skeleton went on tour as a sideshow attraction and made, I guess, money for Dr. Bull. But the skin was also rendered and turned into a sideshow attraction and went on tour for a long time and it's vanished. We don't know what happened to it. And presumably the tusks were sold off for their ivory because they haven't made it to us. Um, but eventually the skeleton ended up uh, at the zoo in the city of Seattle, the, I guess the Woodland Park Zoo. And um, when Dr. Bull died, his son inherited the rights to the skeleton. And his son was a duck. And he decided that there was no way that his skeleton was going to go on display for all those huskies. And so... <laughs> And so, so it, due to Northwest College rivalry. Exactly. So because of the rivalry between the Huskies and the Ducks, he uh, took the skeleton back and gave it to the University of Oregon. And um, at the time, the director of the museum was a fellow named J. Arnold Shotwell, who's, who's a character worth a story on his own. He's a lot like uh, Popeye, but a paleontologist. And um, he took the skeleton and uh, used it for comparison. So when we find fossils, we find little parts of broken pieces of things. We very rarely find complete skeletons. And Shotwell had just been recently finding lots of uh, proboscidean fragments in several sites he was working in, so he needed the skeleton to figure out exactly what he was looking at. And so, um, in that way, Tusco got to serve science at that time. But since then, his, his skeleton has essentially been um, a white elephant for the museum, so to speak. And we've had it stored in multiple different places. It's been spread apart where parts of it would be in one building and parts of it would be in another building. And now we've got it mostly reunited in one secure, undisclosed location on campus um, where we can keep all the bones together. But the, in the end, you know, Tusco was super massive when he was alive. His skeleton is still huge. 
and it takes a lot of space to store it. Um, so his skull probably weighs around 200 pounds. It takes four people to lift it and move it. You know, the jaw probably weighs another 100 pounds. Each of the limb bones probably weighs uh, 75 or 80 or 100 pounds. And, uh, you know, we have the huge pelvis, too, we have to keep, and uh, then all of the vertebrae and everything else. So it ends up taking a lot of space. Um, so we've managed to uh, work out an agreement where we have a storage space in one of the buildings where we can keep it now. And what do you use Tusco Skeleton for here at UofL? Well, right now, uh, what we use it for is teaching mostly. So um, we haven't got a lot of elephant fossils that we're trying to work on right now. So when we're teaching a skeleton class, so vertebrate skeleton class, we'll bring out pieces of Tusco's uh, skeleton to teach students about um, proboscidean skeletons. So not just elephants, but mastodons and mammoths have a lot of commonalities in their bones. Um, we also use it to really illustrate some of the points for bone development. Um, it's interesting because elephants, um, part of the way they grow so big is that they don't fuse up their bones, their limb bones, until they're really old. So I know that a lot of your listeners will be familiar that human skeletons have growth plates that can be damaged when you're a kid, and they fuse up right around the time you become an adult, 18 to 21 or so. Well, Tusco the elephant died when he was in his 40s, and he still has unfused growth plates in his body. Yeah, and that's typical. Elephants have to live to extreme old age before their bones will all completely fuse. So it's, it's neat because we can show students this, and then we can actually use a really big specimen. We can really see the texture of the bone and the way it's growing, whereas opposed to a little skeleton like a dog, it's harder to see. And then every now and then we have an event where we're doing uh, outreach for kids and things, and it's always fun to bring out some big elephant bones to show kids. And um, because it's a modern skeleton, we don't have to worry about people touching it and and you know, accruing damage over time. So. Now, last question: Why is Tusco's location so top secret? Well, uh, there's no ivory, so we're not worried about someone trying to get in and get the ivory. Except people might not know that there's no ivory, and ivory is extremely valuable. So we don't want people breaking in trying to get it um, mistakenly. But but also, you know, he's kind of a celebrity, and his bones are really impressively large and. Uh, potentially a theft target. So as long as uh, Tusco isn't in a place where he's being uh, monitored with video cameras, we're going to keep his uh, location under wraps. But just like all those lame Christmas reruns you watch on AMC every year, there may be some Christmas hope in this story of Tusco the Unwanted Elephant. Yeah, so eventually we want to put Tusco on display. We want to put him back together. Almost all the bones are still there. And it'd be possible to build an armature and actually put it on display. But there's sort of two problems we have to solve. And the first one is the hardest one, and that's where to do it. Because Tusco was the most massive elephant ever in captivity. He, he, he takes up a lot of room. And he'd have to be inside in a climate-controlled building, otherwise the skeleton would deteriorate. So he couldn't have him outside. Um, and so that only there's only a few spaces on campus that are big enough that we could put him together and have him on display. So um, so we you know constantly talking to people in charge of different buildings and oh you're renovating that space well how about an elephant skeleton there and people so far have said no no thank you Mr well, Knight I, hasn't been too into the idea no and that's the other side of it is we have to have money to um, to put it together and so. You know, Phil Knight's been very generous with the university, but there are a lot of different donors who've donated to the university. And so um, the process of assembling the elephant skeleton for display would probably only be a few thousand dollars worth of work. We could probably get a lot of the welding volunteered by 
members of the community and it would just be buying materials and then putting together the, the display panels that we'd want to put up because you know it'd be a museum exhibit there'd be some interpretation too but that'd be a great resource we could use it for teaching and then of course people would just see it and be educated by it too and i think um Tusco provides a story not only about the natural history of elephants and, you know, bone growth and development and skeletons and how cool they are, but he also has a great story about how people have changed their ideas about treating animals, and he's a reminder that it's really easy for people to think they're doing the right thing and that they love an animal, but they're actually... Because Slim kept Tusco for many years in those really dire conditions where he was barely getting fed and when he would go into musk, which is the elephant mating rage, they just chain him up and leave him for a month, and um, and you know things that today we think of would we think are are horribly inhumane, but Slim clearly thought that he loved Tusco. He did love Tusco. He thought what he was doing was the right thing because when he, he yeah. When he talks about his passing, it's this amazing, compassionate right, passage. Right, right, it's, yeah. But yet, like you say, it's yeah, it's horrible by our standards to right, this animal. Exactly, and I think the reason why is because Slim viewed Tusco. Not as um, not as a companion, but as property, right? And so you can be really upset when your car breaks and finally has to go to the crusher, but at the same time, you can just really thrash on that car and not not really worry about what you're doing to it, right? And so today, uh, zookeepers and elephants activists all think of elephants as these, you know, intelligent beings that, that deserve compassion and sympathy. And then a lot of members of the public have gotten to that point too. It's clear that elephants are very intelligent animals, but um, but at the time, you know, Slim and the other people who were working with elephants just thought of them as a resource. You know, not even you know they like 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 horses would have been to them at the time too. You know, we asked Bob Lee of the Oregon Zoo about the intelligence of elephants. So the psychology of elephants, they're incredibly intelligent. Absolutely. The animals yeah. have feelings? Yes, absolutely. You'll, you'll see them mourn. You'll see them get excited. Um, they get nervous. You know, Lily, our little three-year-old, she's probably the boldest elephant we have. She charges into these new habitats that we've created, and it's the, her mom and her aunties that are pulled along with her because they, they're standing back and they're looking around. You can see them wide-eyed, kind of cautiously deciding whether they want to approach, but that three-year-old takes off, and they know they have to follow her to protect her. So uh, very different personalities. You know, we have some nervous ones. We have some brave ones, but it's that herd, you know, them working together that gets them through the day and that's what's important. So you think Tusco was fully cognizant of his surroundings, of his well-being? Of Absolutely, of yeah. So he knew kind of what a, what a sad situation yeah. he was in. Absolutely, you know, to, to be chained like he was, which is what they needed to do to control him at the time, I'm sure he was fully aware and he lashed out against those chains because he wanted self-determination. He wanted to be able to make decisions for himself. He wasn't designed to stand in one spot chained up all day. So... Um, they didn't know any better. You know, it, it's sometimes easy to look back on elephant management over the decades and say, look how wrong people were. But without them doing what they did, we wouldn't be where we are. And we've gained so much information since that time that um, we can look back on it and realize how far we've come from the original folks that cared for elephants. And how has captivity changed for the elephants in the U.S. since Tusco was alive? Well, I think there's a much greater understanding about their needs and their uh, biology. Back when the original Tusco was in Portland, you know, next to nothing was known about these guys. Their gestation, their blood, um, natural behaviors. 
So here at the Oregon Zoo, we've worked with Asian elephant families for more than 50 years. And a lot of the information that's been gained here is what's common knowledge now about elephants, that they cycle every 16 weeks, that their gestation is 22 months, that they need to be able to make decisions for themselves. Um, elephants have a great ability to uh, have self-determination. And if you give them that ability to use it, if you give them the ability to use it, they will. And here at the Oregon Zoo with their new elephant lands habitat, we wanted to make sure that that was part of their everyday life. How do I want to spend my day? What social groupings do I want to be in? Uh, and we provide that for them. So a lot of that information was just unknown back, back in the day. And this is absolutely amazing, just getting this little glimpse here of the elephant lands and what you guys are doing here at the zoo. Do you yeah. want to tell the folks more about kind of what's involved? Absolutely. You know, we have a six-acre habitat here where the elephants can decide for themselves how they want to spend their day. We have rotating feeders, time feeders that go off randomly, so they have to go out and graze. We have heated areas where the heat will turn off and turn on randomly, so if they want to stay warm, they go to one shade structure or go to the next. Uh, in the summer times, we have misters that will come on, so do they want to be cool? Do they want to play in the pool? Do they want to throw mud on their back? Most of their day, I'd say over 20 hours of their day is spent like that. Short periods of time, we come in and work with them to perform uh, medical behaviors so that if we did have a problem and the veterinarian needed to treat them, the elephants would be very cooperative. We have a very close bond with these guys. So um, a lot of choice here for the animals. That's the key. There's two ways to look at the story of Tusco the elephant. The first is as a happy, triumphant elephant, finally free of half of his shackles, looking forward to a wonderful Christmas day, just doing elephant shit, man. Or you could choose to look at Tusco as a sad, chained elephant with sores and open wounds and all. And maybe it's just the Christmas cheer and the seasonal designer antidepressants talking, but when I picture mighty Tusco staring down the Portland police with their rifles and submachine guns aimed at him, I don't see it as a bummer, man. I see Tusco the victorious, Tusco the chain conqueror, Tusco the master of his shed. That massive beast staring down the firing squad with thousands of Portlanders cheering him on. Tusco was no longer the unwanted. At least on one fine Christmas day, right in the Inner East Side, Tusco was finally able to exhibit what a majestic, powerful, and impressive beast he really was. Tusco was going to have a merry, merry Christmas. And besides, it's not nearly as bad as a Christmas special where 43 Oregonians are incinerated in a holiday blaze. I mean, what kind of assholes would make a special podcast about that? And here's hoping that one day, Tusco's skeleton will be back on display so the children of Oregon can once again stare in awe at his triumphant, impressive self, even though he's dead. Merry Christmas, dear ass kickers. Oh, oh, oh. And happy Hanukkah, too. Merry Christmas, dear ass kickers, from Kick-Ass Oregon History. When the children sing and the snow 
on the lookout for future podcasts from orhistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kickass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kickass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. Dear uh, elephant call thing, dude. I can't fucking do it. You do it. Do your elephant call. Do your pissed off Tesco. Merry Christmas! Ho, ho, ho! It's like asthmatic Santa. Ho, ho, ho! I don't feel so good. Ho, ho, ho! But I gotta deliver the presents. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Hey there, ass kickers. Ghost host Andy Lindbergh here. Doug and I have been having a very productive and adventurous 2015. As a result, we are excited to give you a quick heads up that 2016 will bring new stories of Oregon history in a slightly new way. In 2016, we will present a new season of Kick-Ass Oregon History, stories built around a larger theme shared in the way only we can. So stay tuned, and maybe consider becoming a voluntary subscriber via the Patreon support link at orhistory.com. Shit's still free, But, you know, kick a few bucks our way each month and it won't hurt your bottom line. Plus, it keeps Doug from selling his kids plasma to fund our web server. Thank you. ORhistory.com